It's the name of Jesus. Come on, is he worthy? Welcome to the Church of Omaha. Hallelujah, God, you're great and greatly to be praised, Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So glad you're here in person. Amen. Those of you joining us online, thank you for tuning in. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Psalm 125, please. We're going to go into the word of the Lord today. So glad to have Urshan with us. Amen. Looking forward to the second half. They're going to be doing some singing, preaching, praying, worshiping. Hallelujah. Thanks to all of our host families. Amen. Who helped. God bless you so much. Thank you for helping to take care of them. There's a couple out in Sunday school. We'll thank them again in the second half. Pastor Trevor, if you'd remember that. Psalm 125. <clears throat> it's a song of degrees. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto the crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. For just a few minutes of your time, I'm going to treat on this subject, superlative security in God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are the living word, and we pray now that the living word would preach the written word. Cause my tongue to be the pen of a ready writer and write your words upon our hearts. Open our understanding that we may comprehend scripture. Cause every hindrance to be rebuked and cast out. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we pray all of this in the majestic and marvelous and magnificent name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you say amen? Amen. amen. Clap your hands one more time. He's worthy. Hallelujah. Praise God. You can be seated in Jesus' name. I have chosen the word superlative because it expresses the highest degree of quality of anything or something or whatever it's describing. So in this case, it's describing the security of God for His people. And since God is the supreme sovereign, having no equal then the protection of his people is absolute best. You cannot improve on God's protection plan. The central theme of Psalm 125 is all about God's people trusting him because he is trustworthy. He provides stability, protection, goodness, and peace for all those who trust Him wholeheartedly. Psalm 125 offered the pilgrims hope as they sang this song of ascent unto the Lord. Their faith was fixed and firm on God who provided superlative security for them. The psalmist compares God to Mount Zion and to the other mountains that encompass Jerusalem. And he compared the true believers of God to the holy city Jerusalem. 
As is common in poetic literature, the psalmist contrasts good against evil, righteousness against wickedness, with the desired outcome that the reader would make the wise and correct choice to serve God obediently. So let's break this psalm down a little bit and look a a little bit deeper into each of these verses. Verse 1, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. The condition to being like Mount Zion is to then trust in the Lord. They that trust in the Lord shall be as. This means to attach oneself to, to confide in, to feel safe in, and to rely upon. You could take each one of those parts of that definition, and if I had the time, we could probably preach a four-part series just on that alone. Those who trust in God will be immovable, abiding forever, like the stable foundation of God's holy mountain. And the pilgrims who were ascending up to Jerusalem, this song would resonate with them and encourage them to remain faithful to God. As they would journey up to Jerusalem, they would feel the exhaustion of every step because from any direction you go into Jerusalem, you're going up. Elevation, it sets higher than all of the cities around it. So from any direction you're coming in, you're literally walking upward to Jerusalem. So this physical exertion would remind them of what they were saying and singing from this 125th Psalm. Now whether the psalmist knew it or not, he was prophesying of a greater reality that would come through Christ and His church. Because in His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaimed, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You see, God's church is bigger than a single building or a denomination. God's church is a city that is filled with an innumerable host of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation. Praise God. Peter's proclamation, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, was followed by Jesus saying unto him in Matthew 16, 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. As the book of Acts comes to a close, God inspires Luke to write that God's church and the preaching of the everlasting gospel are unstoppable. Can I tell you, you're a part of something that is unstoppable. Furthermore, the writer of Hebrews said that the kingdom of God cannot be moved. That means it's unshakable. So you're in an unstoppable, unshakable thing called the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. For the Hebrew pilgrim that trusted in Yahweh God and the high ground of Jerusalem that symbolized His protection, that's what it was for them. But to the born-again believer, we realize that we are God's city, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore protected by Him. I've been saying this now for the last few weeks. I'm glad you've put the armor of God on, but stop taking it off. Wear it always. Amen. 
Hallelujah. The Hebrews ascended to a literal city of Jerusalem and they would notice all of the mountains that encompassed them and the protection that they offered. But for the born again believer, we ascend into the glory of God knowing that we are filled with all the fullness of God. Hallelujah. Jerusalem was defeated many times in its history. But God has never been defeated and never will be defeated. Oh, hallelujah. While Jerusalem only seemed to be insurmountable and provide immovable stability, God truly is the omnipotent one who can never be destroyed. Verses 2 and 3 describe God as the all-encompassing protection of His people. Listen to how the psalmist said it. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about His people from henceforth even forever. How many of you have been to uh, like a youth congress or uh, you've been to maybe a, a, a ball game or something, at, at, at like a football game or something? You've been in some, or you've seen those, right? You, okay. That's literally how Jerusalem is designed. There's mountains all around. You would think that the temple would have been on the highest one of the peaks. It's not. It's actually in the, in the valley that, that, that surrounds all of them. That way everybody from any position can look down upon the temple. It's not that they're looking down upon it in a negative connotation, but rather that everybody can see it. Similar to like the bowl effect of a stadium. Hmm. And so literally mountains encompass the, the, to, to this day the literal city of Jerusalem. And so as those mountains do that, the psalmist says, so the Lord is round about his people henceforth even forever. Verse 3, for the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands into iniquity. The psalmist symbolizes God as these mountains that are surrounding the city. Not only do they provide stability, but they're also a provision of his protection, amen, for his people. The topography of Jerusalem provides that natural protection that, that invading armies would have to ascend from any direction in order to infiltrate the city. They're therefore making Jerusalem uh, defensible. And although armies did conquer Jerusalem many times, they would suffer great loss in doing so because of its strategic position. And so as these mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord encompasses his people because the psalmist David said it this way in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. I don't find in that verse where it says the angel of the Lord ever takes a break. We take a break. We take vacations. We slumber and sleep, but God never does. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. He's always there, always encompassing us, always around us. That means on your worst day. That means on your bad day. Mm. That means no matter what you're going through, He's there. He said, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Titus 1-2 says, God cannot lie. Therefore, if he says that, it's true. He will always be with you. See, the enemy will attempt to attack the church and will form and fashion weapons against the church. But God's word declares that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. It doesn't say no weapon will not be formed against us. 
It just says they won't prosper. It also says that every tongue that rises against us, we will condemn in judgment. In other words, the church will silence every voice of accusation. Oh, hallelujah. This unshakable, unstoppable thing we're a part of. Verse 3 from the New Living Translation says it this way. The wicked will not rule the land of the godly, for then the godly might be tempted to do wrong. Yet, ironically, we know that wicked kings and pagans did, in fact, rule over Jerusalem. So what does this verse mean? Well, the psalmist and Israel knew that if. You know that small, big word, if? It's the biggest little word, I think, in the English language. If. If they obeyed God, they would not be ruled by the rod of the wicked. But if, there it is again, if they disobeyed, they would indeed be ruled and tempted by the wicked to do evil. Yet there's also within this verse an implicit prophetic reference that although both wicked kings from Israel and wicked pagan kings outside of Israel would in fact rule over Jerusalem... It points implicitly to the king of kings. Oh, hallelujah. There's a king coming. I don't know if this psalmist knew it or not, but we do. Amen. I don't know if he recognized it or not, but we do. And we know other psalmists did, so we can make a safe assumption here that it's very likely that he realized, uh, yeah, we've had some bad kings. We've been ruled by Babylon and Assyria, but there's a king coming for unto us. A child is born and a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And a lot of people stop right there. It's on Christmas cards. It's on the marquees of churches. That's where they stop. But the next verse says, And of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. I've come to tell you, you're a part of something that's bigger than any one church, any one person, any one thing. You're a part of something that's unshakable and unstoppable. Hallelujah, hallelujah. There is no end to the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And therefore, for the born-again believer, these two verses specifically illustrate God's all-encompassing protection. We understand the new birth, repentance, leading to baptism. The Bible says in Galatians 3.27 that, that when we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. Everybody say on. He's on me. According to Colossians 1.27, if we have the Holy Spirit spoken in tongues, we now have Christ in us. Everybody say in. In us, the hope of glory. Therefore, He's in us, He's on us, and He's all around us. And so, for us, these verses point to the greater reality of Jesus Christ who fills us, who surrounds us. Hallelujah. In the song, Not Afraid, the bridge says before me, behind me, and always beside me. No shadow, no valley where you won't find me. No, I am not afraid. That song is illustrating what this psalm talks about. That God is always there, always around us on our worst days, on our best days. He's always there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
And that's his all-encompassing protection for the born-again believer. Verse 4 reveals God's goodness. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and unto them that are upright in their hearts. Notice the condition. This verse is conditional. And God's goodness is conditional. Do good unto them that be good. And to them that are upright in their hearts. You see, the psalmist and the pilgrims who would have sung this song of ascent knew that God's goodness was not just thrown out to anyone and everyone. He wasn't like the government just printing checks. No. No, there, you, you had to do something. Now, I know when we say that, we're like, oh, well, I know, but what about grace? We're, in, we're under the New Testament. Well, it's still the same. If you seek him, you'll find him. There's still an if. Right? How many of you know that just because you got the Holy Ghost doesn't mean you've got a free pass? A lot of people think of God as check marks. I've repented, check mark. I've been baptized in his name, check mark. I've spoken in tongues, check mark. And then they sit on a pew or a chair for the rest of their life and say, I'm a Christian. Little badge, hi, I'm a Christian. You know, there's this old course we used to sing when I was a student. You know, something about the power of the Holy Ghost, I've got it, right? Boy, we'd sing that. That was an aisle-running song. But I got to thinking one day, Sister Alicia, said, a lot of people sing they got it, but they ain't doing nothing with it. So, so I started saying, I'm glad you got it. What are you doing with it? These Pilgrims would have understood this. In fact, the New Living Translation, verse 4 says, to those who are good, whose hearts are in tune with you. That's who God's going to be good to. The Hebrews would have known their history of their ancestors and the cycle of apostasy. That They would have recognized the flawed logic of expecting God to be good to them if they did not reciprocate. In fact, Psalms 1 and 15 also speak to this reality. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is revealed as the one who does not associate in any way with evildoers. He shuns their counsel, doesn't go in their ways with them, and refuses to even fellowship with them. And because of all this, in verse 3, it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper." That's what I want to be. But there's a condition there. In Psalm 15, the same thing is revealed. The questions are asked about who has the right to abide in God's presence, in his tabernacle, in his sanctuary, on his holy mountain. And the answer is, he that walketh uprightly, verse 2 and 3, and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. Now we're getting inwardly. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. We want to talk about true worship. And a lot of times we look at praise and worship as how much we danced and how much we shouted and how much we spoke in tongues. I'm glad you can speak in tongues on Sunday. I'm glad you can shout and dance on Sunday. But can you walk in the Spirit on Monday? Can you love your neighbor on Tuesday? Can you treat somebody right on Wednesday when they've treated you wrong? That's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I don't just want God to do good to me so I get a free pass and think that I'm some sort of VIP and slide into heaven. No, I want to do what it takes to have all I can of God. 
And I'm not presenting that our works save us. But Ephesians says we are saved to do good works. We also know from Corinthians and Ecclesiastes that our works will be judged by God. I want those to be judged and found worthy. Should we sin that grace abounds? Of course not. We should humble ourselves before God. We should walk in His holiness and seek His favor. For God is good and God does good. We know this from Psalm 34, 8. And as well, we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. And so what I'm saying is we need to make sure that we're not just expecting something from God that we may not really have a right to expect. Let me put it to you this way. You can't have a million-dollar miracle on a 10-cent prayer. I'll say it another way. I heard a preacher say one time, I was talking to a group of preachers, and he says a lot of times, you know, preachers will look at, man, I want his anointing. I want to preach like him and all this. Do you want his hell that he's been through too? Do you want the price he's paid to? See, we've got this mindset that we can just download an app, bam, you know, you know, take a pill, and bam, we're just, we're all that in a bag of Fritos. It don't work that way. Well, anyway, okay, I got to move on. I got a time limit here. Verse 5, peace be upon Israel. Watch this. For as such as turn aside into their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. But peace shall be upon Israel. Those who work iniquity, rejecting God and rebelling against him, will be given the wages of their sin, which is death. But those who obey God, they'll have peace. That's exactly what this verse says. You see that, that uh, dichotomy presented right there. The psalmist assures Israel, or assumes, excuse me, that Israel will make the right choice. That they will serve God faithfully and obediently. And he proclaims peace in some sense of prophetic reality upon them. But again, whether or not he realized it, I don't know. But he again pointed prophetically to the greater reality of the church. In Galatians 6 verse 11, watch what it says. Paul is concluding this epistle to the church of Galatian, of, of uh, the Galatians. And he says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make fair, a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in the flesh. So what he's doing here is he's saying the reason they want you to do this is because they, they want to stay a works-based mindset. And he's saying Gentiles shouldn't have to do that. And of course, we know from Acts 15, uh, the council ruled that they didn't have to. But watch what he says here. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, that's Judaism, nor uncircumcision, Gentiles, neither of those matter. But what matters? But a new creature. What matters is you've been born again. What he was saying here is your ethnicity has nothing to do with whether or not you should have salvation. What matters is whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, amen, bond or free, if you're in Christ, we're all one in Christ. 
And then he says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and upon the Israel of God. Very strikingly similar to what the psalmist has just said. Peace be upon Israel. When the psalmist said that and wrote that, and when the, when the pilgrims would have read that, they would have interpreted that to mean directly them. The descendants of Abraham, the, the Hebrews, the Jews. But we know, according to Scripture, amen, Romans 2, 28 and 29, we know according to this that we now are the Israel of God. Ah, Oh, I wish I had time to preach on that a little bit. The point is this. As many as walk according to the rule. What rule? Becoming a new creature. Being born again. They become the Israel of God. Here it is. We cannot get good enough to get God. But when we get God by becoming a new creature in Christ, God makes us good. Without God, you cannot truly turn from your wicked ways. Oh yeah, you can do good things. You might even be voted citizen of the year. But without his atonement, your righteousness is as filthy rags. The psalmist was not wrong to assume Israel would receive God's peace if they made, there it is again, if, if they made the wise and correct choice to serve God obediently. But under the new covenant, we must be born again of the water and of the spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. So, if you're filled with God's Spirit, if you are born again, then you have the love of God and the truth of God in you. This means that nothing can stop you from fulfilling God's plan. I'm going to say that again. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptize his name born again you have his love and his truth in you the bible says you're filled with all the fullness of god Amen. not some not a little not 99 percent. not well when you get your degree then you'll get more no when you get the holy Ghost, you're filled with the fullness of god which means nothing can stop you from fulfilling god's plan except you ready for it you in Romans 8, right, we all love to shout, you know, nothing shall separate me from the love of God. Well, he'll turn everything good for my, for everything bad for my good. Hallelujah. And that's true. And then Paul goes into, you know, shout, you know, death, you know, life, angels or principalities, things present or things to come. You know, nothing shall separate us, right? I'm not trying to pick on Paul. God didn't ask me to write Romans, so, but but it seems as if there's something left out. He doesn't mention your past. And I know a lot of people who get tripped up on their past. Well, I, I didn't, wasn't born into a preacher's home. And I, I backslid and I came back to church. And well, I, you know, I sinned and did this. And I've come short of the glory of God. And meanwhile, the Bible says that if we've truly repented, God does not remember our sins against us. So can I ask you a question? If God doesn't remember them against us, why are we remembering them against ourselves? I almost wonder sometimes if we're going, God, do you remember what I did? And God's like, nope. I've moved on. 
Now, of course, we know he does because he doesn't forget. It's not that he has, you know, a brain cramp or amnesia. It's that he chooses not to remember it against us. Why? Because his blood has covered us. So can I just present something to you? If you're remembering your sin or past against you and causing, letting it hinder you from fulfilling God's plan, you're saying that you have more authority than God. So let me just plainly and lovingly tell you, you can resign as general manager of the universe. Okay? Let God be God. I'm not candy coating and, and saying, you know, don't worry about sin and just, you know, let's just call it a mistake. or No, I'm not saying that. If we sin, let's go to God. Let's repent. Let's go to our advocate. I'm not saying that we sin just so grace abounds. Woohoo, grace abounded again. Yay. What I am saying, though, is don't let anything hold you back from fulfilling God's plan. And if you're born again, you have everything you need. Watch this. Watch this. A woman is in the Old Testament. She's, she's presented with a need. She has, her husband is dead. And she doesn't realize it, but there's been a massive debt incurred. And the creditor comes and says, if you don't pay the debt by a certain time, I'm going to take your two sons and imprison them and enslave them until the debt is repaid. And he had, it, he had right to do that. The law would allow for that. And so what does she do? She cries out for the prophet, Elisha, help me. What do I do? Here's something interesting, just sidebar for a minute. The word, the name Elisha uh, has comparison to Yeshua, but that's another Bible study. So she calls on the prophet, and the prophet comes. Anybody know what he asks? Her, his first question? Any of you Bible scholars? Any of you CM? Is that what they call them? CM? You know? Theology majors, y'all know what first question he asked her? All right, you failed. I'm calling your professor. <laughs> What's some of the professor's names? Give me some. Jerry Jones, Brother Jones, if you're watching this right now, I'm just I'm teasing. I'm just teasing. Anyways, watch this. She says, or the prophet sister says, What's in your house? See, we're sometimes looking out. Well, if, let's see what the charismatics are doing. Maybe we can try that. Well, that church is bigger than me. You know, let's, let's go look over there. Well, he can do this or she can do that, and that's what we're doing. But God wants to say today to you, what's in your house? Uh, well, I got a little bit of oil. Tell you what you do. You go start gathering vessels and gather not a few. And you bring them and have your sons bring them. And as they bring them, that oil will keep filling those vessels. And he says, gather not a few. There were small vessels, big vessels. There were probably stone vessels. There were probably iron vessels. They're getting every kind of vessel they can. They're going to every neighbor's house. Hey, do you have some vessels? Uh, the prophet said to fill them. Can we borrow them, please? Thank you very much. Uh, all right, we're going to fill this vessel up. All right, amen. We got some more vessels over here. I see one right here. Amen. All right, we're going to get some vessels today. And, man, they start filling them up. They're bringing them in. And what's mom start doing? She gets to, oh, I'm not going to pour anything in your purses, but it's sealed, okay, see? Amen. But mom starts pouring in. Now, she had just a little bit. 
Oh, I wish I could preach this like I feel it. She had just a little bit. Some of us think, well, I've only got a little bit. But can I tell you that what's in your house is sufficient to save you? Hey, boys, look at that. It filled that one up. I wonder. Oh, my goodness. You got any more? And they started and just kept. And the Bible says when finally they got to the last one, the oil stayed. There was no more vessels. She was able to sell it, pay off the debt. Thank you for letting me borrow your vessel. Well, actually, hers is heavier. I'm telling you, I don't even want to ask. I'm just teasing, picking on you. I'm sorry. It's got some oil in there, let me tell you. What's in your house is sufficient to save you. See, we're letting things hold us back from fulfilling God's plan. But I want to tell you, you've got all you need. You've got the Holy Spirit. You're back. I'm not saying don't study. I'm not studying to show yourself approved. I get all that. I'm not taking away from any of that. What I'm saying is quit letting something hold you back that shouldn't be holding you back from doing what God's called you to do. From being who God's called you to be. You see, this is the thing. We want God's superlative security, and this is how we want it. We want Him to protect us and keep us. And can you guys just screw a little bit together like you like each other for a minute? This is what we want. We want God to protect us, and we're all there. Amen. But God's coming in today, and He's saying, I've got a shift. I want to separate some things out here. I want to get in between what's holding you back from fulfilling your purpose. We, we want God's security, and we're thinking of it like, well, you know, I'm secure. I'm going to go to heaven. I'll just wait right here until he comes. No, that security is for us to go out. Sheep among sheep is easy. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to talk about God here today because you either love God or filled with him or, you know, most likely if you're here under compulsion, let me know and we'll figure that out. But I would say most of you are here today because you want to be. And if you're tuned in online, because you want to be. But sheep among wolves. That's what Jesus, I'm going to send you out a sheep among wolves. Now, logically, that doesn't make sense. But it does make sense. God would not purposely put you in a place. Sheep among wolves where you would get hurt. What he's saying is, I'll be there to protect you when you go. The superlative security of God is not so we can sit on a blue chair and wait till the trumpet sounds. It's so that we can fulfill what he's called us to do and know he's with us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me most of the days of my life. Oh, Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Turn around. They're still there. Praise God. Go through a hard time. They're still there. Uh, get bad news. They're still there. Make a mistake. They're still there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, let me read this to you as we're bringing this to a close. I, the time just keeps ticking away back there, and Lord help us. Ephesians chapter 3, would you put that up, brother? Ephesians 3, verse 17. That Christ may be, excuse me, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be, here it is, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. We know the incarnation is when God became flesh, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14. But the incarnation is incomplete until Christ be formed in you. God was in Christ reconciling the world. But the Bible says in that same passage, he's now in us. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, Wow, would you look at that? There's more to the verse. We stop there. God can do it exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Wow! But there's more to the verse. According to the oil that I already have in my house. And so this prophet has come today to ask you, what's in your house? I know it may not seem like a lot. I know it may be a debt to pay. I know there may be some trials. But if you get that oil, what's in your house is sufficient to save you. Hallelujah. According to the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory. In the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Stand with me in Jesus' name. You have what you need to fulfill the purpose and plan of God. Those of you from TCO, some of you might remember uh, a couple years ago, did that little testimony series, God has a plan. It's brilliant. And I'm part of it, right? You heard some testimonies. Again, this year, you heard some testimonies of people who declared what God's doing in their life. Amen. People who've come from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life and different places and stations. Amen. Hallelujah. That plan that God has, that purpose He has for your life, you can fulfill it. Trusting in the superlative security of God that He's going to be there with you. That He's going to walk with you through the entire uh, uh, step, every step of the way. Hallelujah. That's what it is. It's not just to get inside some defense place and wait it out and, and, and thank God for His protection. No, it's to go out. Those gates that don't prevail, that's not we're behind the gates and we won't be attacked. It's us going to the gates of hell and ripping out to people that are there and them. It's an offensive thing, not a defensive thing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What's in your house sufficient to save you? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would take this word today and let it resonate within our hearts. Lord, as I prayed at the outset, write it on our hearts and minds that we may take it with us, that we may do what you've called us to do, be who you've called us to be. Lord, let us realize that you have filled us with all the fullness of God and that that power already works within us. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ and give you all the glory. Amen. Amen. Clap your hands to the Lord. He's worthy. Amen and amen. Well, we're going to take a break.
and be back here at 1120 and uh, look forward to Urshan singing, preaching, having a good time. So God bless you during this break in Jesus' name.